I'm Mo Kelly, in for Oscar Ramirez as host of The Daily Dive, a daily news podcast covering some of the top stories making waves in the news. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive Monday through Friday on iHeartRadio, and it's ready for you when you wake up. Here on The Daily Dive Weekend Edition, we bring you some of the best stories we've covered during the week. As the AstraZeneca trials for the COVID-19 vaccine hit a snag, the debate resumes as to whether the guardrails and safety protocols worked as intended or it's proof that we're moving too fast in a quest to return to normalcy prior to the pandemic. Liz Zabo, senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News, will update us on the status of the trials and what any setback may mean. There are actually several variety of safety valves that are built into the clinical trial process. So this is one in which a potential side effect was picked up. And we don't know yet if this side effect, which is supposed to be a a spinal problem, if that really was related to the vaccine or not. That's why the NIH and others are investigating. What I'm seeing more and more is a comparison going back to H1N1 and the vaccine, which was developed and implemented very early in the Obama administration. Politics aside, is there any legitimate comparison as to the vaccine trials of H1N1 back in 2009 and COVID-19 today? The process of getting a vaccine will be longer for COVID because with H1N1, scientists already had a flu shot and all they needed to do was to substitute the H1N1 flu sequence for other flu sequences that we've used in the past. So scientists were familiar with the vaccine. They knew how that sort of vaccine worked. The big delay was that the flu vaccine is grown in chicken eggs. It's a bird virus, so it's grown in chicken eggs, and that takes some time. So there was a little bit of a delay, some manufacturing delays with the H1N1 vaccine. This is very different because this coronavirus is very new. We've never licensed a vaccine against a coronavirus before, and the technologies that companies are using to create this vaccine are also new. And most of them have never been used to make a vaccine before. Big picture. Can you describe the process as far as where we are in the progression as far as phase three trials? I keep hearing phase three. What does that mean for the layperson? Any drug that's going to be used in humans goes through a set period of study and a set sequence of trials. So first, they'll maybe test it in a cell in a Petri dish, in a lab dish. They might test it on mice. For this kind of vaccine, it's being tested in primates. Then the first type of trial is a phase one trial, and that's just to try to set the correct dose of the, of the vaccine or drug and to find out any early signs about safety. These are small trials, just a few dozen people. Because these are first in human studies, they keep them small to make sure that no one's hurt. Then we go to a phase two trial. Their doctors are looking also for safety and some early signs of efficacy. And the big, really definitive study is the phase three trial. And for a vaccine, these are being given in the United States to 30,000 people for each trial. So there are two trials that are ongoing right now in the United States, one from Pfizer and one from Moderna. They both are going to enroll at least 30,000 people. In fact, Pfizer just announced a couple days ago they're upping that to 44,000 people. And the reason that those trials need to be so big is they want to look for rare side effects. They might be able to find out earlier if the vaccine is effective with fewer people, but sometimes there are rare side effects. And this spinal problem that a patient apparently had with the AstraZeneca drug, it's called transverse myelitis, that's really, really rare. 
So you're not going to see really rare but serious side effects until you test them in huge numbers of people. So right now we've got two trials that are in phase three that are ongoing. The AstraZeneca trial had just started. That was also supposed to be a 30,000-person trial, but that's been paused because of this potential side effect. At the end of it all, best case scenario, at least in terms of the AstraZeneca proposed vaccine, would it be an annual shot like we get the flu shot? Or is it something which we may take one time and we're done like maybe the chickenpox virus? That's a great question. And in some ways, this is going to resemble the childhood vaccinations. If anyone out there has kids, you know that they don't just get one shot, they'll get uh, a series like measles shots, you'll get two. Like the MMR? Uh, yeah, that's right. You'll, you'll get one when the child's around maybe a year or 18 months, and then they get another one before they enter school. So with this one, people don't yet know how many shots we're going to need. Now, the first two vaccines that are closest to making it to approval right now in the U.S., the Pfizer shot and also the Moderna shot, those right now are two-dose vaccines. So you get your first dose, which primes your immune system. It sort of readies the immune system and prepares it. And then with the Moderna shot, you get your second shot four weeks later, and that really sets off the immune system to be ready to prepare for this virus and and ready to respond. With the Pfizer, it's slightly different. It's two shots three weeks apart. But one thing people should know is that let's say you get your first shot four weeks later, you get a second shot. It takes your immune system a good two weeks to develop those antibodies. So from the day you get your first inoculation until you may be protected would be six weeks. We don't know yet if we're going to need annual boosters like with the flu shot or even a booster sooner than that. We just don't know, but that's a really important question. She is Liz Zabo, Senior Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Hawaii is to begin allowing travelers who test negative for COVID-19 to bypass quarantine starting October 15th. David Oliver, social media editor for the travel section at USA Today, will tell us how we'll need to pack. I would make this announcement. It's something that has been postponed several times. So Hawaii's governor wanted to you know, put this in place August 1st, but you know, had to keep postponing it as COVID cases kept spiking on both the U.S. mainland and also in Hawaii. And then they were going to start September 1st, and then they had to cancel that. So it's been pushed back so many different times. So I would read this as sort of somewhat, you know, bowing to pressure, but somewhat needing to get people traveling to Hawaii again. And, you know, cases have actually are down from a higher average from like last week. So in theory, this could be the time to try it, but time will tell if this is going to work out. It's interesting. You say time will tell as if we really know what the future is going to hold. But from what it seems like you're telling me, it will be subject to what is happening not only in Hawaii, but in the United States as far as just infections, correct? That's what that means. Because in theory, as people start to travel again and these things begin to happen, like, you know, there could be lapses and then whatnot. So it's what matters on both the U.S. mainland and in Hawaii. Yes. Travelers will have to take a COVID-19 test within 72 hours before their flight arrives, so it matters where their origination point is, arrives in the island. CVS and healthcare provider Kaiser Permanente have agreed to conduct the test as part of this agreement with the state. But it highlights the obvious that people will be coming into contact with a lot of other people in life and in the airport in those preceding hours after the test, would they not? 
Yes, that's true. And airlines are supposed to be helping inform travelers of this requirement. And then Hawaii actually, earlier this summer, they're requiring travelers to fill out an online safe travels application in order to keep both residents and visitors healthy during the pandemic. So, you know, that's a digitizing a process that was once via paper. But, you know, they're trying to, I guess, you know, just make sure that people are aware of what's going on and they can keep track of where people have been all in theory to obviously prevent a spike in cases. But as we've seen with this pandemic, like it can take like one person to fall out of line or to not answer truthfully or whatnot. It could end up becoming a super spreader. You used the word pressure before, and there seems to be this push-pull between public pressure and public policy. Hawaii has fared relatively well. You mentioned that. To my mind, from what I see, there's only been maybe 103 deaths so far attributed to COVID-19 as of this conversation. But from what you've read, what you've seen, what you can glean, has there been pushback from Hawaiian residents not connected to tourism over this? Or are they more against possibly introducing more people into the population right about now? I'm not 100% sure exactly what everybody's thinking there. But I would say that, I mean, if you think about it in general, obviously, like, you know, the more people you introduce to a population, there is definitely going to be concern among residents, among fellow travelers about exactly what's happening. So I would say that I think that applies to everywhere, you know, just besides Hawaii. Well, I guess I'd say that a certain portion of the population is concerned about this type of thing. And obviously, we're seeing a lot of different opinions around the country, you know, in regard to mask wearing and things like that. Since Hawaii has done relatively better than other parts in the United States, I would imagine that they've not had to endure the type of sheltering in place or lockdown restrictions of businesses, like say here in California. To your knowledge, has Hawaii had to really implement any of those in-state restrictions that other places have? Not to my knowledge, unfortunately, no. But I mean, I do believe that, you know, around the country in general, there have been these types of restrictions pretty much everywhere. So it may not be exactly the same, but I mean, in terms of quarantining and whatnot, Hawaii specifically, just given the way that the rules have been for visitors, I mean, Hawaii's had to be careful with those currently even on the island. Like they just started to put together a resort bubble, a proposal, and then it just got passed for um, the county of Kauai, where if guests want to travel in between islands, you know, they can quarantine at specific resorts that are following uh, certain protocols. So, I mean, it's not like that they're not taking it seriously or that there are restrictions. I think that like everywhere else, you know, there are restrictions in place. Okay, so... There is not necessarily complete freedom of movement for a traveler. If you were to fly into Waikiki, it does not mean that you can go to the other neighboring islands and just have free run and free exploration. Is that correct? No, at least not right now. No. In theory, like you can't just like once you're there, you have to say to a specific resort if they're, you know, if they're a part of this program. But a resort has to meet specific guidelines in order to become a part of this resort bubble program that was floated earlier this summer. Has this notification been met with overall cheer, glee? Are people happy about this? Or is it just very cautious in nature right about now? Just a general reaction. I think in general, I think it's something that we all sort of saw coming eventually. And then we were anticipating kind of each month this is going to happen or not. But then as, you know, cases started spiking, it was kind of a general like, oh, no. But then I think you've just seen it around the country. People are really fed up with being quarantined or, you know, not being able to move around as much. You're just seeing it in terms of like, you know, like I guess even the whole Big Ten decision to start playing games again. Like it's just, you know, it's around the country, this feeling. So I think it was not unexpected that this is going to be lifted or that there was, you know, this program will be in place soon enough. But 
like kind of like I was saying before, it's like we're going to have to wait and see if this is actually going to work out as well as people hope. When is the high time for Hawaii tourism specifically? Is it this time of year or is it some other time? Travel to Hawaii in general has been down, I believe, about 90%. Tourism traffic to the state, um, it's gone down more than 90% since the pandemic began. And that's led to hundreds of hotels having to close and putting people out of work. So, I mean, it doesn't even necessarily matter at this point, like in terms of like the best season. It's like, I think if they can get travelers, you know, can go to Hawaii, I think that would be great for everybody in terms of trying to, you know, fix what's already really battered economy right now. He is David Oliver, social media editor for the travel section at USA Today. David, thank you for all of your insight and taking time out to share it with us today. Of course. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. As the U.S. approaches 200,000 deaths and millions more hospitalized in the fight against COVID-19, the bill is coming due, much to the surprise of many under the belief that COVID-19 treatment would be paid for by the federal government. Robbie Whelan, correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, will break down who is responsible for which costs and to what degree. Well, at the beginning of the pandemic, the federal government set up a system that was supposed to kind of make sure that nobody got any large surprise bills for these unexpected medical costs that they have to pay out of pocket. And they did that by giving about $175 billion. Congress authorized this money to what was called the Provider Relief Funds. And these funds were meant to sort of offset the high costs that hospitals and other providers might have for treating people who got the disease. At the same time, the private insurance industry stepped up and sort of across the board, the big insurers all agreed to waive cost sharing with patients. So what that means is when you, you know, every year when you meet your deductible after that point, you know, any care you get in a hospital under normal circumstances, you've got to pay some percentage, 10, 20, 30%, something like that. And all of those agreements are, are waived and the insurers are covering 100% of costs after deductibles were met for private insurance holders for COVID-19 only. That's the only illness that is covered in this way. And so it's almost as though the federal government and the private insurance industry have set up a system of something that looks like universal health care only for one illness. So that was the goal. And so far, it's gone fairly well. But there are obviously cracks in the system as there are in any system. And, and some patients are still vulnerable to big unexpected costs. Okay, let's drill down on that. Let's say I'm a person who's obese. I have uh, comorbidities, as they say, high blood pressure, diabetes, and then I go to the hospital and I'm also diagnosed with COVID-19. How does that person know or any person know whether such a delineation will be made that his treatment is going to be COVID-related and covered? For starters, if you have a positive COVID-19 test that's administered in a hospital, then you automatically will be billed under the billing codes related to COVID-19. So no matter what other complicating conditions you have, if you have a secondary infection or if COVID starts attacking more than just your lungs, it also can attack the heart, the kidneys, and other organs. Whatever it may be, as long as you have that diagnosis, positive test for COVID, you're going to be protected by the various protections that have been put in place. Now, the bigger distinction is not whether or not you have comorbidities or whether or not you have any other condition. The bigger distinction is what your insurance coverage is. So we tried to look at this in terms of kind of the four most common profiles for insurance coverage in the U.S., and I can go through them if you'd like, but um, they're generally speaking people who have good private insurance to their employer, people who are uninsured no coverage at all, 
And then people who are on either Medicare, the federal insurance program that's most commonly used by, by older Americans, or Medicaid, which is the one mostly used by low-income Americans. So how you're covered and what sort of plan you have is going to be the biggest determinant of how much you pay. And the way it breaks down is basically if you have good health insurance through your employer that's private, you're going to pay probably almost nothing, close to nothing. There may be some out of so some outpatient costs, like going to a clinic for dialysis related to a kidney problem stemming from COVID, or maybe some prescription drug co-payments that you might have to pay your pocket. But generally speaking, these big bills that people get in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, the patients are not being asked to pay very much of those. Then we go to the uninsured. The uninsured as well paradoxically, are pretty lucky in the situation because the CARES Act that Congress passed in March mandates that if you're uninsured and you go to a hospital, the hospital is not supposed to charge you. They're supposed to go to the federal government and say, look, here's how much we spent on this COVID patient. We would like to be reimbursed for that from this patient, uh, the provider relief funds. And that usually happens. But one of the main hurdles to that is it's a mountain of paperwork. Imagine you've gone through this horrible illness. You've had weeks in the hospital and you might have lost your job at the same time. One of the most common symptoms of COVID-19 that persists for a long time is called brain fog, where people have persistent confusion and forgetfulness. Under those conditions, it's very tough to ask a patient to fill out all this paperwork and make sure that they get taken care of. So the resources are out there for the uninsured, but they have to sort of take things into their own hands, which I know can be very difficult for a lot of patients. You kind of hinted at it. I guess an adjacent conversation to be had as I close our conversation is the larger universal healthcare debate. How much, if at all, is this COVID-19 coverage being used as a template or even a test case, dare I say, for how universal coverage could be used or implemented here in the U.S.? I'm not sure that the federal authorities who and, and the lawmakers who drafted the CARES Act were thinking about it exactly that way. What I do know is that the effect has been something like a universal healthcare system for one disease. And the real worry, and this is where you can think about it kind of as a test case, the real worry is that the federal funds that have been authorized are not going to be enough to get us past a possible fall surge in cases. So if we don't have a vaccine by the end of the fall, and if we do see another big second wave of cases, then the federal government funds that have been allocated for this might simply run out. And at that point, we'll have something of a test case because we'll be able to see, look, here's one particularly costly disease to treat. And we tried to treat it largely with public funds. And here's how, how long it took. Here's how fast those funds ran out. And so that will be sort of a test case. You can imagine, you can imagine and extrapolate from there, if this is how much it costs and how long the funds lasted for one illness, COVID-19, you can imagine how much more quickly they'd run out for every single disease that affects Americans. This conversation is seeming like it's just beginning more than anything. He is Robbie Whelan, correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Mr. Whelan, thank you for coming on today, sir. Thanks for having me once again. You can catch a fresh episode of the podcast every morning, Monday through Friday on iHeartRadio. You can also follow us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. I'm Mo Kelly in for Oscar Ramirez, and you're listening to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. <laughs>